Welcome to Living Through the Word, the official podcast of the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word, a diocese of the Anglican Church in North America. I'm Julian Dobbs, the Diocesan Bishop, and I'm thrilled that you're joining us for this episode today. Now, on this podcast, we have different guests from across the diocese and the nation uh, around global Anglicanism to discuss topics that matter to us, to you, uh, to ministry, to life today. And I'm thrilled to be joined on this episode by Bishop Mark Engel. Bishop Mark is the Bishop of the Diocese of the Great Lakes. He earned a master's degree uh, in divinity at Ashland Theological Seminary and a Bachelor of Arts degree in business and economics and Christian ministries from Malone University. He has served in the gospel ministry for more than 42 years in various pastoral capacities across the United States as a missionary in Taiwan and across uh, Creative Access Asian Nation. He also serves as an adjunct professor at Regent University. He and his wife, Terry, have been married and partnering in ministry together since 1981. Uh, they are the parents of three adults, adult children. And Mark's heart is to see a unified church used by God to transform uh, cities, the regions, and the world. And it doesn't take long once you spend time with Bishop Mark Angel to know that he just has a heart for Jesus. I'm thrilled you're with us today, sir. You are very welcome. Thank you, Bishop Julian. It's great to be here. As I listen to that uh, bio, I recognize it and I realize that I need to update now because I've, we've got one new grandbaby. So That's fantastic. So how many grandbabies now? One. Just this the one. First. Okay. Yeah. So I'm a step ahead of you with two, right? <laughs> you are. You are. you got to catch up now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do our best. <laughs> we'll keep that telly going, which is fantastic. Um, I've invited Bishop Mark Engel to join us for the Bishop's Book Club as we make our way through The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. And he's got the most fascinating chapter uh, to talk to us about today. But before we get to the book, uh, Bishop Mark, tell us how you came to know Jesus uh, and a little bit about the Diocese of the Great Lakes. Well, I'm going to attempt to do that uh, in with some brevity because I tell people the, the older you get, the longer your stories are or the more of them you have. But uh, I was uh, the family I was born and raised into was a church-going family. Um, we uh, my my mom's side of the family were godly women going back. My mother, grandmother, great grandmother they were in the Baptist and Bible Church tradition. And my dad's side of the family came out of uh, mostly a Lutheran tradition, and we ended up in the Methodist Church. So I grew up in a Methodist church, small town that was very evangelistic, very, very faithful to the scriptures, uh, was catechized, went through confirmation, learned the creed, the Lord's Prayer, was taught to read my Bible and pray. And uh, and I did all of that uh, pretty faithfully up up through my uh, high school years. Although the the further I went, the the less uh, the less I, I sensed at the time. Uh, the reality of that or the need for that. I had uh, in high school, I excelled in athletics and, and, uh, and academics and had friends. And I didn't think, you know, I didn't really see the need for God so much in my life. And this was the, this was the late sixties, very early seventies. We were on the tail end of the Vietnam war and all of that stuff. 
sort of a general spirit of rebellion in the world. And I, deep down internally, I had that myself personally. And so um, as God would have it, a lot happened, but I ended up going to Malone College at the time, Malone University, which is a Christian college, um, not because it was a Christian college, but because I wanted to play baseball there at an excellent baseball program. There's and, the motivation, right? <laughs> exactly. And so I went and uh, I sort of, in my mind, had a deal with God that that I would mind my own business and he would mind his own business and away we would go. And we had mandatory chapel three days a week. I attended, usually slept or did homework. Um, but all through that time, you know, stuff's getting in there and the witness of people around me. Um, and uh, I fell in with a group of guys that did a lot of stuff off campus. I sometimes, when I tell a testimony, say I spent two years as a very committed pagan at a Christian university. Um, <laughs> and um, and in, in 1976, uh, through the witness of my, uh, my coach, my baseball coach, I had a marked and assured experience with Christ where I surrendered my life to him. My my life was pretty much in shambles from the poor decisions I made uh, about so many bad things in those days. And uh, and the day he invited me to, uh, to well, he, was, he confronted me about the drinking problem in my life first off and and invited me to consider the claims of Christ again. I uh, I I just came to a real point of decision, and I had waffled back and forth. I had enough training in spiritual things that I would feel guilty for a while, try to make up for it, and then go back to the same problems again. And I was very miserable. And that day, as I met with him, um, he asked if I would, uh, if I wanted to trust Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I said I did. And that day, unlike all the other days, I prayed, prayed the sinner's prayer. Um, when I prayed, I heard something else come out of my mouth. I really believe it was a Romans 8, the Spirit helping us when we don't know how to pray. And I prayed, Jesus, be my Lord. And yes. that sealed it for me. Uh, because that was, I, you know, my mantra in those days, it's my life. I'll do it my way. I don't want people telling me what to do. And uh, I, I by the grace of God that day, I really yielded my whole life to him. And uh, and I haven't done it perfectly, but by the grace of God, he's enabled me to to walk with him for over four decades now. And so I'm I'm eternally grateful for uh, for my coach and his impact in my life with many others, my parents as well. Bishop Mark, thank you so much for sharing that personal story. We've just, um, on the previous episode of Living Through the Word, we had Bishop Orgy take us through the previous chapter, and so much of what he shared there um, is what you've just shared here uh, that reminds us we're on this pilgrimage, right, and that God meets us along the way, and they're very, um, in God's great providence, um, many circumstances and people that the Lord places across our paths. You were there, what did you say, two years as a pagan? Mm -hmm. um, uh, but the Lord had other plans. And um, and thanks be to God for that um, and the great testimony of his grace. You now serve as the diocesan bishop of the Diocese of the Great Lakes. Tell us a little bit about that and the diocese. Yeah, the, the Diocese of the Great Lakes uh, is is. Predominantly a, a, a regional geographic diocese. We're basically in mainly in Michigan, Indiana, Eastern Kentucky, and Ohio. 
Um, like a lot of ACNA dioceses, we do we've got an outlier outlier congregation in Rochester, New York. Um, we have uh, Brother Tim and the uh, Livingstone Monastery down in Newport News, Virginia, who's been historically connected to our diocese. But that's pretty much our our area of of you know ministry. We've got currently we've got forty congregations. Um, um, we have uh, roughly active and and retired about 150 clergy our um, our average Sunday attendance is for that area is around 2000 so that's sort of the makeup we don't have we don't have uh large churches in our diocese we were one of those dioceses when folks left the Episcopal Church they lost everything and started from scratch we later had a pilgrimage of churches come in when EMEA joined up and 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 has strengthened and solidified our diocese. So, um, but there's some really, really good things happening. We've we've now recovered back to where we were pre-COVID. That's wonderful. Um, we did have a few small struggling congregations that closed through that, but in recent years, we've also been blessed with a couple of really strong church plants. And uh, we have more of that on the way. That's a key focal point for us, planting and replanting churches. And so it, it's uh, we're we're in a good season. The Lord has really blessed us um, with a with a great sense of camaraderie, um, and we were we were really trying to celebrate that at our recent synod, recognizing the stories of the various clergy and congregations. And we're sitting right now in the early stages of a, a, a huge generational shift. Mm. Uh, we have we have a whole generation of clergy at retirement age or beyond and are retiring and a whole new contingent of folks coming into the ministry as young people. And uh, the Lord has really blessed us. I think the last time I talked with our canon for leadership development, there were, I think, 30 people somewhere in the pipeline of discerning and, and seeking ordination. So it's uh, it's an exciting time to work with very seasoned clergy who have a real burden to help mentor and raise up this next generation. I think as I shared with you, I was following uh, portions of your missions conference and synod, and it just looked like you were having such a fantastic time uh, and celebrating many of those things. Uh, the Pilgrim's Progress has been printed and read um, and translated more than any book other than the Bible. I just find it absolutely stunning that that's the case, right? Well, millions of Christians have cherished author John Bunyan's allegorical tale of the journey of Christian on his epic adventure as he leaves his home in the city of destruction and begins his quest, lifelong quest, to the celestial city. Every time I read this book, Bishop Mark, it's like... um it's like the testimony of my life. Uh, and you and I were talking before we recorded, and you've sent some of that. Just any introductory thoughts about the whole book? Yeah, just before we started, uh, I mentioned how the first time I read Pilgrim's Progress was probably 40 years ago uh, as a as an earnest new Christian, you know, and this, I came across, you know, numbers of books that were classics and and so, uh, and now reading it again over four decades later, um, one of the first observations I had was um, how it was much more theoretical the first time I read it as a new believer, mm -hmm. uh, and yet to walk out my faith for a couple of decades. And now, you know, four decades later, like, 
oh, I've experienced these things. I, I see that in, in my life and the life lives of others that I've ministered to. And so it, it just brought a, a whole different perspective to it along the way. Well, you've got this chapter about Vanity Fair and all sorts of other things. Uh, take us through that. Tell us what you think we need to know um, and what stands out for you. Well, there were uh, there were a couple of things that that just jumped out to me immediately, and one of them was um, obviously this is this is not a new challenge for people of faith on their pilgrimage. There's always been a vanity affair. There's if the writer even refers to it being five thousand years old, going back to what Old Testament believers faced, but. Uh, you know, when I look at the kinds of things that Bunyan lists of the kinds of uh, enticements of the world, I thought, how true is that in our day and age? And particularly when he talked about the the issue of of entertainment and uh, and all kinds of goods that can be purchased. And I immediately saw, said, well, that looks exactly like our culture today here in, in America, where there's rampant uh, entertainment constantly available due to the internet and everything you can imagine. And, and also the consumerism in our society where, uh, where you can pretty much buy anything, anytime, anywhere, uh, and get it sent to your doorstep. And so, so I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? This book's written in the 1600s. <laughs> Here's exactly. the description of Vanity Fair. Let me read it to you. And in this town of Vanity are taverns, nightclubs, roadhouses, seductive shows, popular casinos, culture societies, fashionable churchgoers, synthetic Christians, sectarian denominational segregation, professional pastors. There are also famous pseudoscientists, charlatan physicians, dishonorable crafty lawyers, unscrupulous politicians, clandestine bookmakers, racketeers, imposters of all kinds. Man, it's got to be written in 2023, right? <laughs> exactly. I think it went on and talked about people that uh, had false degrees and inflated, inflated their resumes. And, you know, that stuff's playing out right now in the national news. Uh, talking about the, the the gambling and, you know, in growing up my years, you you had to go to Las Vegas or Atlantic That's City. It. And now there's uh, there's casinos everywhere. And and. And now there's constant advertisement for the latest sports betting apps. So mm -hmm. it's just, it's always been around, but I don't know when it's ever been so profuse and so immediately available. Um, it's, a it's a real attraction, um, but it's also a real stumbling block, isn't it? Um, it that is. attraction of the world, because it's it's not that Christians are immune once you give your life to Christ. We're in the world, and sometimes... In fact, often the world tries to grab hold of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. And anybody who's been in ministry for any length of time would have to be honest enough to say, I know there are times when I could be incredibly vulnerable. You get, you get tired. You get lonely. Many ministers uh, minister in isolation. And you just want something to numb your mind and try to forget all that for a while. And we see that today, especially even in ministry where COVID was so hard and so challenging, and there's always been a trend of many people leaving the ordained ministry, um, but it's it's a challenge as well. And and then trying to trying to as as believers 
live in a society where there's no respite. There's there's no moment where you're not bombarded it's by just everywhere by the draw of all of these things. Yeah. I remember Bishop John Guernsey, one of our um, almost retired bishops of the college, um, saying at one stage, we need to pray for a reformation and a transformation of Hollywood. And mm-hmm. I remember when he said that, I thought, yeah, I think that's right. We need to be praying that Hollywood, Hollywood is transformed because it seems like there's so much power there to bring Christians down. Yeah, Absolutely. And and I think some of those prayers have begun to be answered with with uh, certain producers and folks who are stepping up and going against the current. I think that I think this new series, The Chosen, is outstanding. And uh, and so uh, it seems that there are those who've begun to sort of take up that charge. But there's a long way to go, no doubt. How did you see that whole lure of Vanity Fair affecting people in the book? Well, uh, it it certainly seemed to blind their eyes for the majority of them to anything that faithful or Christian represented. Mm. Where where as they walk into town, um, their even their appearance, they're immediately thought to be strange, and mm. and people were suspicious of them. Mm. And I think I think that's true. Uh, certainly, there were those who saw the the. The tenor of their life and the and the godliness of their testimony, whose hearts began to be softened a bit toward them, but by and large, before they did or said anything, just the fact that they walked into town as believers on pilgrimage caused them to be suspect and accused. So, um, you know, I think the society we live in today is is increasingly turning to uh, one that has has diminishing tolerance for people who just want to live a Christian life. Did you, do you recall if Christian and faithful, I don't think they do, but they don't retaliate in any way to all of that mockery. And um, they're more interested, I think, right, if, I, if I'm recalling that particular section well, in the testimony of their lives speaking for them. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It says that there's there's nothing that they do in retaliation. They continue to remain patient and show kindness. Um, the only thing they do is they respectfully speak the truth. Yeah. Yeah. We see this with Paul, don't we, in places like Ephesus and elsewhere, and everybody turning against him and crowds being um, uh, uh, energized to, to, to riotous levels, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 Paul stands up and he proclaims the gospel. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And a part of and a part of his testimony, as I remember, was uh he said, I I didn't rob your temples. I I didn't commit, right. you know anything yeah. anything aggressive or harmful against you. I'm simply proclaiming the truth of Christ. And I think that's crucial always in the Christian faith. Uh, unfortunately, too many times people in the world seek Christians as people who only can proclaim what they're against. And I think it's so powerful when they see that we can proclaim who we're for uh, and that we're for people to know the one Jesus that we're for. It fascinates me too, Bishop Mark, that the um, that the, the Vanity Fair is the town of Vanity is actually near the celestial city. Like it's not, it's not, 
on a completely other tangent um, that reminds, you know, when you read this through, it, re it reminds you that um, uh, as you walk towards the goal, um, the stronger are the efforts of evil to dissuade you from reaching your purpose, right? And and I, and I see this um, in the New Testament when I and I read Paul again in places like Second Timothy. All the, and, and I know we're going to pick this up in a moment, but all those who want to live a godly life for Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It shouldn't surprise us. Therefore, the closer we come to the return of Jesus, the stronger and the more powerful the attempts of the world to dissuade us from our path. Yeah, I believe that's absolutely correct. Um, I've often thought the pattern that you can see pretty clearly is the enemy will do everything he possibly can to try to keep us from giving our lives to Jesus in the first place. And when we do, and once that has occurred and God seals us by his grace, then I think his efforts just double down on trying to do everything he can do to cause us to have a poor testimony or be ineffectual mm. or compromising in our walk with the Lord. And, and sadly, how many times have we seen, we, you and I probably both know people personally, as well as the ones you see in the media, of Christian leaders late in life mm. who have lived godly lives and ministry for years who fall. And I think, you know, as I get into this season of my life in ministry, I'm con I'm very, very conscious to pray, Lord, help me finish well. Um, it's so important. Yes, it's 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 you're right. It fascinates me too that um this particular portion of Pilgrim's Progress, the, the first section that we're discussing on the on the Bishop's Book Club, um, was written while John Bunyan was in jail for refusing to give up preaching as um, a casualty of the changes in the religious culture of his day um, brought about by the restoration of the monarchy uh, in England in 1660. Um, and yet, um, in the midst of all of that pressure, he's standing fast for Jesus. And um, and we've heard his depiction of of society in his day, which is so much like ours. Um, the tragedy, though, Bishop Mark, is that as you just said, some people do fall away, don't they? Um, what what can we do? Do you think to to help one another? Because the story the story's moving forward. Um, a Christian's not on his own. The story's moving forward. What can we do to help each other stand fast in the faith amidst all of the, the, the challenges? Yeah, I, Bishop Julian, I think that's absolutely crucial. Um, you know, you notice, you notice in, the, in his pilgrimage, um, a Christian is, is looking for companions and, mm -hmm. and trying to find those he might walk with. Uh, and he's certainly strengthened once faithful comes into that part of the journey with him. And I think I think one of the things we tend to lose in our in our American, particularly our American Christianity, is our our culture is built very much on on individualism and independence. And if that's not the that's not the heartbeat of the Christian faith, when Christ calls us to Himself, He calls us to others in His family together. And they are a gift to us. That's why there's all those one another's in the New Testament. Pray for one another, forgive one another, encourage one another. And I know through my own experience uh, how vital that is to have prayer partners and intercessors 
someone I'm accountable to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, people who will hold us before the Lord and will hold our feet to the fire, so to speak, uh, in following him. And that that lead that that requires that requires by the grace of God a transparency and a humility that runs contrary to everything about human nature. Um, and so I believe it's absolutely vital. And coming from the years of ministry we did in Taiwan and in Chinese culture and Eastern culture, where the entire culture thinks group first mm. and individual second. Uh, I think there was a lot to learn for me getting back to a truer biblical mindset of a Middle Eastern culture. And you start to read things in scripture that I always read as speaking to you individually, and this is a personal promise to me, and then beginning to read and discover that this was a you plural, and it was a corporate promise to the church, and how we need to live that out to experience it together. There was an early song um, in the um, movement of the um, writers of modern Christian music. You'll probably remember it. Uh, we are pilgrims on a journey. We are brothers on the road. We are here to help each other, to walk the mile and to bear the load. Mm. And I, often when I read Pilgrim's Progress, I think about that old song, right? Because it's as, as tempting as it is to try and do it on our own, put up our fences. Um, we just can't do it that way. We, we, we're meant to be in fellowship with Christ uh, and, and with one another. You talked about Taiwan. There's an element of um, um, wisdom that you can bring us here in the story because, because there's, there's persecution that happens here uh, in this chapter. And, and uh, both you and I have had the, the um, privilege of working amongst people who have been um, persecuted and are suffering for their faith. Just talk us a, about that in the book and from your own experience. Sure, be happy to. Well, we were in Taiwan for about 10 years, and uh, the situation in Taiwan is it's, it is a, a democracy. It's, uh, there's, there's religious freedom, um, but the Christian church is made up of maybe 5% of the population. So uh, you're a minority, and there's certainly pressures uh, uh, culturally uh, related to that. But, but generally speaking, it's, it's not, it's like, I think we talked about it before the show. It's, uh, we've not yet resisted to the shedding of blood. Right. Yeah. I've had encounters with people in other, uh, in other creative access Asian nations. And I just still don't mention it specifically to this day because, uh, believers are at risk of tremendous persecution. And I've, I've had the privilege of speaking and talking to those who bear in their bodies the brand, the mark mm. of persecution mm. and torture. And, uh, and at the same time as that was happening, the, the church in that nation grew at the most rapid rate. It was the greatest revival ever known in the history of mankind happening in our generation, and many people aren't even aware of it. And so it reminds us of the, you know, the old saying that the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so um, I always I always felt a, a great deal of uh, of um, 
unworthiness almost, I would go and share to help teach and train because of the riches of what we've had in this country with translations of the Bible and theological education. And I, I knew God had given me that to share with them. And at the same time, I looked at their lives and I said, I need to be the pupil when they start talking about the cost of discipleship and learning from, from their testimony as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I, th- I found it quite fascinating this morning in morning prayer, our readings uh, in wisdom had to do with folks later in life, recognizing how foolish they were to have persecuted the righteous. And, and then the reading in Revelation, where this anchor verse in Revelation chapter 12 says, and they have conquered him or overcome him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives even unto death. Um, I think that is the heart of it, um, to live faithfully for the grace of God. And I reflect on it always. I served with some senior missionaries who had been born, uh, whose parents had been go, uh, been sent to difficult nations in the late 1800s and lived through decades of challenges and disease and persecution. One spent uh, time in a Japanese internment camp during World War II and the things they went through. And uh, their testimony speaks to me because I've I've been blessed to live in this. I really tell people all the time, we live in a bubble <laughs> in church history of, of the freedom we've had from persecution here in America, but many others have experienced it intensely, even in our lifetimes in other parts of the world. Mm. Mm. I mean, the, the persecution, thank you for sharing that. I mean, we're, uh, many of the missiologists today tell us that there are more Christians persecuted today than in any other time in the history of the Christian church. And in Pilgrim's Progress, we see it worked out. There's there's a trial. There's um, an opportunity to give evidence. The jury retires. They come back with a verdict to execute faithful. And there's a passage. I just want to read it, um, Bishop Mark. Um, the judge heard the verdict, accepted the recommendation, set the day of execution. So faithful died on the gallows, true to his conviction, sealing his testimony with his own blood. Then I saw that there stood behind the crowd a golden chariot and a couple of fiery steeds waiting for Faithful, who, as soon as his adversaries had done all they could against him, was taken up into it and whisked away through the clouds the nearest way to the celestial city. I thought I heard the sound of the trumpet when he reached the pearly gate. I mean, it's so very powerful, isn't it? And it reminds us that, in fact, while not everybody's going to lose their life physically for following Christ, we are actually all beckoned by Jesus to lose our lives, to lay down our life, to take up our cross. What does that mean? Surely it means nothing less than go to the place of crucifixion to take up our cross. You don't take up your cross if you want to go to Vanity Fair. You take up your cross and you go to the place of crucifixion. You deny yourself, you follow Christ. And some lose their lives physically as a result of that. All of us are called to give our lives. Who was it? It was Bonhoeffer who said, you know, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. Exactly. um, But he gives us grace in the midst of that, right? And in in your personal situation, in the situation of those with whom you worked, um, uh, uh, it must have been tough to see so many suffer 
as a result of their faith in Jesus Christ. Yet isn't there also a beauty in the midst of, of that that incredible wrestling for, for, for the gospel? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I I I think of the testimony um as as we're shortly after Christmas, day after Christmas, and we'll uh we'll remember the feast day of Stephen. Yeah. And uh, and as he was dying, you know, his face shone and Christ was revealed to him mm. and it had impact on people around him. And uh, I've seen that happen through the, the lives of others in so many places, their testimony of not just being willing to die, but being willing to, to suffer and to lay down your life and not retaliate is, is such a powerful testimony that people have to begin to ask questions. Why would anybody do this? How could anybody do this except by the grace of God? And so um, I think that call to the cross is so crucial, the Lordship of Christ. I've, whether, or not, whether or not yet in my lifetime it will call for the shedding of blood, I don't know. I remember at my consecration almost three years ago, Archbishop Foley saying it might. Uh, it was a very sobering call to step mm -hmm. into that place. Um, but I do know from day one of my decision to walk with Christ, um, he called me to uh, to die to my own selfish desires and my own self-will, which was very, very strong. And uh, and I think that's that's what being molded and conformed to the image of God's son, Jesus, looks like um, as we learn to say, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And it reminds us too of this whole story, and then we must pray. It reminds us that we're, we're on a pilgrimage, and we're pressing on, uh, Paul says it, to the upward call, the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, there's a, a beautiful passage here. Let me read it in the uh, chapter we've been discovering. Then I might ask you to pray, Bishop Mark, if you would. Um, uh, as for Christian, he had a little respite. He was remanded back to prison where he remained for some time. Then as the Lord of all would have it, he was finally released. And he went on his way singing, Faithful, you have fulfilled your worthy name. Faithful to him whom you now are blessed, while pleasure seekers, men without your faith, cry out in fear and cannot hope for rest. Sing, faithful sing. Your name will now survive, for though they killed you, you are still alive. Isn't that beautiful? Amen. And it's, it's so much the story of John Bunyan himself, who was imprisoned um, then and wrote this first part in prison um, and then is released and is able to preach the gospel. Uh, incredible story. Bishop Mark Engel, would you pray for us as we conclude our time together? It'd be my privilege. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Gracious Heavenly Father, we cannot thank you enough for the fullness of your grace, for your love for us in sending your Son, Jesus Christ, into the world for our salvation. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We we're grateful today as we are reminded by this testimony of the testimony of so many others who've gone before us, many who've laid down their lives to give us the faithful teaching of your word, others in our lives who 
uh, poured themselves into us as companions along the way. And for other believers who continue to walk that out with us, we give you thanks. I thank you for Bishop Julian, my brothers across the ACNA, for their encouragement and their love and their prayers. And we pray, Father, for uh, your grace to sustain us and enable us with your favor. We thank you for the promise of your word that the favor of the Lord is upon the righteous and surrounds them like a shield. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, as we continue on this pilgrim way, you have committed yourself to complete what you have begun in us. For faithful is he who called us and he will bring it to pass. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful and to carry our Christian witness forward in ways that bring you glory and honor. And we pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen, indeed. Uh, this is the Bishop's Book Club on Living Through the Word. We're reading John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, and I've been joined by uh, Bishop Mark Engel today. Bishop Stephen Breedler picks up the story on our next episode. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace.